0: Welcome to PwC's weekly accounting podcast series. I'm Heather Horn. This episode is a continuation in our special series of shows dedicated to looking at some of the accounting areas impacted by COVID-19. As we continue to look at the area of impairment, we focus in this episode on the fundamentals of the impairment models for goodwill and long-lived assets. Joining me again from his home in New Jersey is PwC partner, Andreas Ohl. Before we get started, just one quick message to our listeners. Every time we get on to record in this new format, I think about all the accountants out there who are preparing for their March 31 close and dealing with so many new issues in such unprecedented times. Hope you're all managing okay and staying safe. And with that, let's get started. So Andreas, really appreciate you coming on to talk about the impairment models for long-lived assets, intangibles, and goodwill. Just given everything that's going on in the world right now, and thought this is a good time to review for our audience these models as they start to think about their March 31 financial statements. Before we actually jump into the detail, I think it would be helpful if you give us the background on something that I know is very important when you're doing impairment tests, which is ordering. So I know it's not something you can just go in and go in any order. Order, but it's very important to stage things properly. So, can you give us some background on that?
1: So, when goodwill and long lived assets that are held and used are tested for impairment at the same time, you have to follow a particular order. So, the first step is you look at assets and liabilities that are not covered by ASC 360. So, think about things like receivables and inventories, as well as indefinite lived intangible assets that are under ASC 350. The second step then is you look at the 360 assets, so PP&E, finite life intangibles. And finally, the third step, you get to goodwill. And if there's an impairment at any step along the way, you first record that impairment and adjust the carrying value of the impacted assets before you move on to the next step.
0: I noticed that you were very careful to point out that this was the ordering if you have assets that are held and used. So is there a different order to follow if you have assets that are held for sale?
1: Uh, Yes, there certainly is. So for uh, held for sale assets, um, the order is just a little bit different. So again, you do start with assets and liabilities that are not 360. So receivables, inventories, and indefinite lived intangibles. Then in the second step, you test goodwill. And then finally, in the third step, you look at the long-lived assets, so the PP&E and the uh, finite-lived intangibles. You record the impairment and adjust the carrying value before you move on to the next step. So really, the difference is that the order is just a little bit different.
0: So then, Andreas, I know one of the areas that we get the most questions is around the impairment models for long-lived assets. So why don't we start there?
1: The nature and the, the need for impairment testing really varies depending upon what kind of non-financial asset we're we're talking about. So maybe if we start with uh, long-lived assets, so PP&E and finite-lived intangibles, remember this group of assets includes right-of-use assets related to uh, leases. And certainly for some companies, that can be a pretty substantial uh, portion of the of the asset group. So the test happens at the asset group level. And the asset group is sort of think about as the lowest level at which you have cash flows that can be attributed to a specific asset or group of assets. It can in rare circumstances be an individual asset that doesn't happen too often. But a good example of that is say you had some intellectual property, and you had uh, out the rights to somebody else, and they were paying you a royalty. Well, in that case, That asset has a discrete set of cash flows that don't involve any other assets. So it would then be tested on its own. But in most cases, assets are working in conjunction with other assets in order to generate a cash flow stream. So they get tested as a a group. The test itself is what we call a trigger based two step test. So it's only performed when there's actually a triggering event that calls into question whether the uh, value of the assets are recoverable. And if so, then you enter into the test, which, as I said, has, uh, has a two-step model.
0: Why don't we talk about what happens if you conclude there is a triggering event?
1: So the first thing you do is you look at uh, step one, which is what we call the recoverability test. And the way that works is you're comparing the undiscounted cash flows that are generated from the use of the uh, assets in the asset group to the carrying value of the asset. And remember, because these cash flows are undiscounted. Um, This test is a bit different than the impairment model for some other types of assets. And only if the undiscounted cash flows are less than the carrying value do you move on to the next step. Otherwise, you don't have an issue and you stop with step one.
0: Okay. And then, Andreas, I know a key point on step one is that this is actually from (coughs) the perspective of the company and doesn't take into account what someone else might do with this asset
1: yeah that's right. Because it's a recoverability test, you're you're looking at it through the perspective of how management intends to use the assets, and it's based on the the current state of the assets in the asset group, which means you don't factor in things like expansionary capex or restructurings or other things that a market participant might plan to do down the road because it is really current state through the perspective of the uh, the specific entity.
0: How do you know, or what period of time should you use when you're assessing your future cash flows?
1: So the standard is very prescriptive in that regard and tells you you have to use the uh, life of the primary asset. So that's sort of the most important asset in the asset group. That's often the longest lived asset in the asset group. The period over which you record the cash flows for purposes of the step one test is generally the depreciable life of that asset
0: people often have questions about what you should do about related liabilities so how did those factor in
1: so generally the way you look at it is that operating type liabilities are included in the asset group financing liabilities so debt and that things of that nature are uh, are not that's the general rule there could be some complexities when you're dealing with liabilities for example from leases but Ultimately, the objective is you're trying to get an apples-to-apples comparison, which basically means that if you have the liability reducing the carrying amount of the asset group, you need to make sure that you have the cash outflows to satisfy that liability in the undiscounted cash flows for the recoverability test.
0: And so then, Andreas, I do my test, and let's say… I pass, quote unquote, and I actually have higher undiscounted cash flows than my carrying value, then I'm done, correct?
1: Yeah, you're done. The only thing is that because you had a triggering event, you should probably always give at least some thought to whether there's any indication that maybe the useful life of some or all of the assets in the asset group may now be shorter, but that may be a consequence of whatever the economic conditions were that caused you to think you had a triggering event.
0: I think in these cases, we always say disclosure is something that should be considered depending on if you need to do some foreshadowing or something else.
1: That's right.
0: Okay. and so, But then let's take the other case. So I've done my test. I took my undiscounted cash flows, and they're actually less than the carrying value. So now I move to step two. And what does that entail?
1: That's right, so step two is a fair value test, and so it's very different than step one. Um, The cash flow forecast that is prepared is uh, going to be through a market participant lens. It's not limited to the life of the primary asset, so the, the cash flow forecast could look quite a bit different, but on the other hand, because it's a fair value concept, it's going to be discounted, so in most cases, it's going to be lower than the step one test. To the extent that the fair value is less than the carrying value, well, the amount of that difference is then your impairment.
0: And then just some mechanical questions. So now I've calculated my impairment. How do I know which assets to write down if I have more than one asset in the group?
1: So the, the actual uh, impairment is then allocated on a pro rata basis, but only to long-lived assets. So you're not going to write down inventories or things like that. And the write-down is limited to the fair value of the individual asset. So if you have an asset in the asset group that has a readily determinable fair value, you wouldn't, through this allocation, write it down below that value.
0: So then, Andreas, why don't we go back to something you said at the beginning, which is triggering events, which is the whole question of when you're going to do an impairment test. And I know, in particular, in the current environment, this is where we're getting a lot of questions. So can you... Help us I guess start things off by just explaining what we mean when we say triggering event and and how we think about that
1: sure so the trigger event obviously is a is a judgmental area and it's the linchpin to the whole model because until you have that the rest of it doesn't uh, doesn't apply um, so the the standard has uh, examples of common triggers that are helpful to understand the uh, the concept of what a triggering event is remembering that the objective here is that a trigger event is supposed to be an indication that something has occurred that causes you to believe that it's uh that it's possible that the asset group may not be recoverable i.e. doesn't pass the uh the, the first step of the impairment test so while there's a long list you know the classic example is the asset group is uh is a plant and related assets and the utilization of that plant is now suddenly lower because there's been a drop off in demand for the product that, uh, that the plant produces.
0: Maybe to ask specifically the question that's on everyone's mind, what if there is a sudden abrupt change, for example, a global pandemic that results in changes in your plant or other use of your assets?
1: Sure. So in, in, in that kind of an example, if the asset group is experiencing a you know, current period decrease in cash flow, say, because the plant shut down or operating at, at a much lower capacity level than historically it was. And maybe that's due to a decline in customer demand. Maybe it's because they're having supply chain issues, could be a lot of things. And that situation is expected to continue for an extended period of time. That may be an indicator that the asset group is, uh, is not recoverable. So the thing to keep in mind, though, is it's, it's not a black and white type test. You have to think about context. So if you think about two companies that maybe are in the exact same business and they each have a plant that makes the exact same product, but one of the companies has a brand new plant that maybe has 20 years of useful life um, left in it, and the other company has a plant that's fairly old and has two years of life left. Well, if you think about it, the primary asset in one case might be 20 years and in the other case 2. And so that would be the cash flow period that you would use in the two tests and the implication is that, you know, if things are going to take a while to turn around, that period of time it takes to turn around could be really material to the 2-year cash flow forecast whereas for the 20-year cash flow forecast there's there's still plenty of time for the asset to generate cash flows and therefore the asset to be recoverable so you really need to think about the context
0: i know we're going to get into some more details on considerations for march 31 in our subsequent podcast we're going to record but for now sticking to the basics why don't we turn to our other impairment model and this would be the model for goodwill and indefinite lived intangible assets and i know another area we're getting a lot of questions particularly looking at what's going on um, with the stock market etc so can you start us off on this topic?
1: Sure. So for Goodwill and Indefinite lived Intangibles, they must be tested annually and then in between the annual tests if there's a trigger. So it's unlike 360, which is purely a trigger-based test and it's a recoverability test. The Goodwill and Indefinite lived Intangible model is an annual test. And what you're trying to get at there is whether there's an indication that the carrying value of the reporting unit for goodwill or the asset, in the case of an indefinite lived intangible asset, is, uh, is higher than the fair value.
0: Okay, and then, Andreas, you talked briefly there about the unit of account, and I know it's different between this test and the long-lived assets, so can you summarize those requirements?
1: Sure. So unlike uh, the long-lived assets that are tested at the asset group level, Goodwill is tested for impairment at something called the reporting unit. And that may be different than the asset group. It tends for most companies to be a higher level in the organizations, but tends to be comprised of uh, multiple asset groups in, in practice. So remembering that a reporting unit, the way it's The way it's determined is it's either an operating segment or one level below, and it needs to be a business. So it tends to be higher than an asset group.
0: Okay, so then, Andreas, what if you have a situation that the company has concluded that it's more likely than not that the fair value of the reporting unit is less than the carrying value, then what's next?
1: So um, a couple of years ago, the FASB modified the model. Um, since most companies early adopted the new model, we'll, we'll focus on the, uh, the, the new model. And so the test basically is you're comparing the fair value of the reporting unit to the carrying value. If the fair value is greater than the carrying value, then there's no impairment and, uh, and you know, no further action is, uh, is needed. If, on the other hand, the fair value is less than the carrying value, then a charge is taken in the amount of the shortfall. That charge, however, is limited to the amount of the goodwill on the books, so you can't have a write-off that exceeds the value of the goodwill.
0: So then you don't have to do a separate calculation anymore?
1: No, the step two, to the extent that you adopted the new guidance, the step two of the goodwill test no longer exists.
0: Sounds easier, but are there anything in particular you would point out in applying this more simplified model?
1: Yeah, well, one thing to remember is that in the old model, you used to have the ability to recognize that there was an impairment, i.e. fail step one in one quarter, and then you had sort of a measurement period concept where you could take up to one more quarter to figure out what the actual amount of the impairment was, and that was just because step two was complicated and time consuming. With the elimination of step two, that is no longer an option, which means that you need to record the final impairment amount in the quarter in which you have the trigger and determine that there's a, uh, an impairment. So it just means you have less time to uh, process the test.
0: So then, Andreas, why don't we also go back for Goodwill and, say, and talk a little bit about the trigger? And you mentioned that companies have to perform this test annually, but then also if there's a trigger, and again, that's a question on everyone's mind right now. So what can you tell us about triggering events when it comes to Goodwill?
1: Yeah, so conceptually, they're similar to the long-lived assets, but because the models are a little different, you're not dealing with whether or not the asset's recoverable. Again, you're looking for indications that the fair value, the reporting unit, that it's more likely than not that it's below its uh, carrying value. Um, The the nuance here is really that a long-lived asset, you might be aware that the fair value of that uh, long-lived asset is less than its carrying value. But if it's not far enough below that you fail, step one of the 360 test, the fact that the fair value is less than carrying value doesn't matter. In the case of goodwill, that's the only part of the test because there's only one step now. So that is the crucial difference.
0: Okay, that's helpful. So then, Andres, how about potential examples of triggers for an interim goodwill impairment Mm -hmm. test?
1: Sure. So the the standard gives uh, a list or examples of triggering events. Obviously, they're not uh, all-encompassing, but companies really need to think broadly about uh, what's going on with their business from an operational financial perspective and market risks that they're exposed to. So one common trigger that we see, at least for, for public companies, is that there's been a decline in the stock price or market cap of the company, particularly if it's Fallen below the, uh, the the book value of the company. In certain scenarios, this may trigger the need to perform an interim impairment test, as the market cap theoretically represents the market's expectations of the value of the uh, of the company and therefore its future ability to generate cash flows.
0: So, Andres, this helpful discussion of decline in market cap below book value, and I know given the recent. Stock market volatility. We're getting a lot of questions in that area. But before we talk about specifics, can you highlight any other examples of interim triggers that our audience should be thinking about?
1: Sure, Heather. So, well, the stock price movements get a lot of attention because they're observable by uh, by everyone. It's important to remember that that's just one of many potential triggering events that are highlighted in the uh, in the standard. So, the the standard has a a long list. um, Obviously, not exclusive. But basically, they focus on developments that uh, would suggest that either you have a potential reduction in future cash flows, or you have an increase in the riskiness of those cash flows. Both of those things would result in a lower fair value, all else equal.
0: Then why don't we go back to the place which I know is getting a lot of questions and attention, which is how companies should think about a case if their market cap does drop below their book value. And whether you need to think about that as a triggering event.
1: Sure. Um, although goodwill and t- impairment testing happens at the reporting unit level, companies should also consider whether declines in, in the market value are conveying information as to how the market assesses the future cash flows of, the, uh, of one or more of the reporting units. Course, the more reporting units that the company has, the harder it is to attribute the changes in the stock price to the expected performance of any individual reporting unit. And a decline in market cap below book value doesn't always mean that an interim trigger has occurred. Companies need to consider both the severity and the duration of the decline as well as the reasons for the decline. So a severe decline, even if only recent, In the company's stock price, if it's caused by an event or a condition that is expected to continue for an extended period of time and have a negative impact on the company's uh, ability to generate cash flows, that may well represent a trigger. On the other hand, if there's a short-term decline in the share price, that isn't always indicative that there's an expected decline in cash flows that is going to uh, persist. The companies need to consider all available evidence when making that assessment. Another thing to point out is that just because uh, companies in the industry are experiencing uh, similar declines, that doesn't mean that a a trigger has occurred because the same dynamic that may be negatively impacting the future cash flow outlook of the company, that may just be affecting the entire industry. Another thing just to remember is that in extreme scenarios, it, it is possible that a company could have multiple triggers in a relatively short time. But an extreme case of that was in 2008 when, uh, because the economy declined precipitously during the fourth quarter, there were a number of companies that took impairments both at the beginning and at the end of that same quarter.
0: So maybe one small blessing that all of the issues with the market have really been concentrated in March. But I guess a reminder that even if you have issues in Q1 you may still have things to assess in Q2. So then Andreas, with that backdrop, any final thoughts for their, our listeners as they're thinking through these tests?
1: Sure. Uh, well, there's one misconception out there, which is that the model for goodwill and long-lived assets is an other than temporary impairment model. And, and that's not the case. It is different than, say, the model for equity method investments. So Significant judgment has to be applied when coming up with whether or not a triggering event has occurred. You know, that's particularly true when you have triggering events near the or potential triggering events near the end of the quarter or things that might persist through the uh, release of the, of the financial statements. Companies, when thinking about this, need to think holistically and they need to weigh both positive and negative factors when determining whether or not a triggering event has occurred.
0: Okay, Andreas, very helpful and definitely a lot to think about. Very helpful insight.
1: Sure, happy to help.
0: Please stay tuned for our next episode where Andreas will answer more questions on impairment considerations in a COVID 19 environment, focusing on fair value. Next week, look for more coverage on the latest issues affecting your financial reporting, including episodes on interim disclosures and revenue. So that you never miss an episode, subscribe to this series wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'd love to hear from you. So please write to me at heather.horn at pwc.com or to stay up to date on the latest content, Let's Connect on LinkedIn. For PwC, I'm Heather Horn. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast is brought to you by PwC All Rights Reserved.